Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. Let's pray, shall we, as we turn our attention now to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your Word. We thank you for this time of worship that we've had. We pray that you would continue to work by the power of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, in our minds, to bring conviction and encouragement and change, hope, healing, where it's needed. Would you grow and strengthen our faith today? We ask for that in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, we are continuing our series through uh, the book of Deuteronomy today. And just by way of review, we've, we're about halfway through the Ten Commandments. We're focusing on the Ten Commandments. And we've seen that the first four commandments teach our duty to God, and the last six commandments teach our duty to our fellow man. So we can summarize the Ten Commandments this way. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Today, we're looking at the sixth command, you shall not murder. It's simple, it's straightforward, just four words, you shall not murder. Uh, this might be one of the few commandments that everybody still agrees with. Most everyone would agree that murder is wrong. It seems pretty obvious, so what's there to talk about? <laughs> I think that most people, even Christians, read this command and say, yep, check that box, I'm good on this one, maybe even breathing a sigh of relief, thinking, at least there's one command that I can keep. Yet when we study and understand the full implications of the Sixth Commandment, we see that it's, like the others, one of the commandments that we break most often. Now, a couple weeks ago, we saw a principle to help us understand the Ten Commandments. That was we called the, the two-sided coin rule, meaning that every command is both positive and negative. So if, if it forbids a, a sin, then it also requires this corresponding duty. So for the sixth commandment, it forbids murder, but it also requires preserving life. And I want to add another principle today, the inside-out rule. The, the commandments don't just govern external behavior, but also our internal attitudes and desires. So what's clear in the 10th commandment about coveting is true of all the commandments. God holds us accountable, not just for our actions, but for our hearts, our minds, our wills. And we're going to see that today as well. So with that in mind, I want to summarize the message for us today like this. Do not murder with your hand or your heart, but do all you can to defend and preserve life. Don't murder with your hand or your heart, but do all you can to defend and preserve life. We're going to try to answer five questions this morning. Why is murder wrong? What does this commandment teach? Is all killing wrong? How does it apply in our culture? And how does God aim at the heart in this command? So first, why is murder wrong? As we said, most people would agree that murder is wrong. But why? Why is murder wrong? I think if you asked people, most people, if you pressed them, would say something like, well, because it's good for society, right? We can't just go around killing people. If, if society is going to be safe and stable and function, then murder has to be wrong. And while that is true, even though that's a utilitarian ethic, there, the answer to that question is deeper than that. Now, the answer is not in our text from Deuteronomy. It's actually found in Genesis 9, 6. 
Genesis 9, 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for or because God made man in his own image. So we could ask the question, who decides whether or not your life has value, whether or not your life is worth protecting? Is it the government that decides that? Is it the parents? Is it the doctor? Who decides? And another question would be, what factors would determine your life's value? Is it how smart you are? Is it how much you contribute to society? The Bible teaches us that the sanctity of life is more than a pragmatic calculation. The command not to murder is grounded in this theological truth that man is made in God's image. Therefore, every person has intrinsic dignity, value, and worth. Meaning, your value is not based on how smart or successful you are, how pretty or productive you are. It's based solely on the fact that every human being is created in the image of God. That's why murder is wrong. No one can harm another human being without simultaneously attacking God. God is both the author and the giver of life, and only He has the right to determine when taking life is acceptable. Now, the sanctity of human life, then, applies to all people, regardless of their race, sex, age, level of development, degree of dependency, contribution to society. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how old you are, how healthy you are, or how bothersome you are. (laughs) Every person has inherent dignity and worth. Every single life is precious to God. The unborn are precious to God. Kids with uh, special needs are precious to God. People with disabilities are precious to God. Your aging parents, my aging parents, are precious to God. Every human life is precious to God. It's valuable simply because we bear His image. That's why murder, unlawfully killing someone, is wrong. And that's why we have a duty to defend life so far as we can. Now, what does the Sixth Commandment teach? The the commandment reads, you shall not murder. Murder's a good translation. It's better than you shall not kill, which is what you find in some translation. Murder is more accurate than the word kill because the Hebrew word is more specific than the common word for killing. That word used here is not used in judicial or military context. So, The command deals with murder, not all forms of killing in general, as we'll see in just a moment. The the sixth commandment forbids any unlawful or wrongful killing, both intentional or accidental. So it forbids intentional, premeditated murder, what we might say is murder in cold blood. It's deliberately taking an innocent life. But it also forbids what we call voluntary manslaughter, a crime of passion, and involuntary manslaughter, which is accidentally killing someone through recklessness or carelessness. That would include things like reckless driving, drunk driving, uh, leaving a child in a potentially harmful situation, maybe locking them in a car outside when it's hot, or leaving a loaded gun around the house, those sorts of things. Some accidental deaths are still morally blameworthy if they occur through reckless or negligent behavior. So, for example, in their day, their houses had flat roofs to increase their living space, and they were commanded when they made a new house to build a parapet, a wall, around the roof so that they would not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Deuteronomy 22, verse 8. 
Or, for example, if they had an ox that was known for goring people, you know, like trying to stab people with its horn, uh, and they didn't keep it properly fenced in, and it got loose and it gored somebody to death, then the owner would be guilty and sentenced to death. Exodus 21, verse 28 to 29. Why? That owner was responsible and, and guilty, therefore, because he was negligent. The point is, is that God teaches us in his word that we're responsible to care about our neighbor's life. They couldn't just say, well, it's your own fault that you fell off the roof. Why don't you be more careful where you're going? That was not something they were allowed to say. God commands people to take an active concern, a positive concern for the well-being of their neighbor's life. It's like our laws to put a fence around your in-ground swimming pool so that people don't accidentally fall in and drown. You see, now we can begin to see how the command not only forbids murder, but it also requires preserving life. Positively, then, it requires doing what you can to defend, promote, or save life as far as it's in your power to do so. Negatively, it forbids any unlawful killing, whether intentional or accidental. It could be premeditated murder in cold blood, a crime of passion, or death caused by reckless or carelessness. Now, that leads me to ask our third question. Does this mean that all killing is wrong in all situations? And the short answer is no. This whole time I've been using the phrase unlawful killing. That's because there are some situations where taking life is permitted. One of those situations is self-defense, protecting yourself or a family member from physical violence. So the Bible says, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun is risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. Exodus 22, verses 2 and 3. In other words, uh, if, if someone has no choice but to kill in order to defend themselves from an intruder, there's no guilt for that. At night, you can't tell if a person is armed, if they're intending to kill you when they break into your home. If you kill that person, then there's no guilt. Right? But, verse 3 adds, but if the sun is risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. Meaning that if, if you could see that killing wasn't necessary in this circumstance and you killed that person anyway, then you would be guilty. The idea here is that if killing to protect yourself is necessary, there's no blood guilt. The point is, is that self-defense is not a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Now, by extension, the defense of a nation is also not wrong either. The Bible makes it clear that in certain circumstances, war is allowed, and it's lawful to kill enemies in a war, provided the war is just. Now, there are several factors that go into and need to be considered carefully to determine if a war is just. I'm summarizing here in this paragraph uh, several different books, uh, ethics books that I have at home. A war is just if it is waged by a legitimate government for a just cause with limited objectives and minimal force needed to secure peace or in proportion to the attack and then only against soldiers and not civilians and only when all other means of resolution have failed. Now, when a group of soldiers came and asked John the Baptist, hey, like John is preaching and he's preaching repentance, and they say, these soldiers come and say, hey, what do we need to do to repent? John does not tell them that they need to leave the Roman army. He tells them, don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages, Luke 3.14. Cornelius the centurion is called a God-fearer 
three times in Acts chapter 10. Hebrews 11 commends the faith of those who became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. Hebrews 11:34. The point is this. It is possible to be both an honest and an honorable soldier as a Christian. And we could add here uh, police officers as well. Uh, but what about Jesus' command to turn the other cheek? Well, first, that is a command regarding when someone slaps you as an insult. Second, they're not threatening your life. Second, it's a command given to individuals, not the government. And it doesn't apply to a soldier in battle, in the line of duty. Another situation where killing is permitted is capital punishment. That is death, the death penalty for certain crimes. And we already read part of Genesis 9. But I want to read Genesis 9, 5, and 6 again. God says, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Human life is so valuable that it carried the most severe punishment, death. So capital punishment, at least for murder and perhaps for other heinous crimes, is not a violation of the sixth commandment. God values life so highly that he will not allow murder, unlawful killing, to go unavenged. He will require reckoning for the life of a man. Now, Genesis 9, verses 5 through 6, provides the foundation for human government. After the flood, God is rebuilding civilization. And he delegates the authority to punish wrongdoers to human beings. So God says, I will require the life of a man, verse 5. But God doesn't act directly. God does this through human agents, saying, by man shall his blood be shed, verse 6. This is not personal revenge. This is human beings carrying out God's justice. So the authority to punish wrongdoers it's not given to individuals, but to men in general, through some form of government. Now, while it's wrong, it's wrong for an individual to take the law into their own hands and to seek justice or vengeance for themselves, it is not wrong for the government to punish a criminal. In fact, it would be wrong if they did not do so. Now, this implies that the government has to decide what wrongdoing is worthy of punishment, what punishment is appropriate, and if a person is truly guilty. But of course, God did not leave us without instruction for these things to guide us. He gave us the standard of his word. Now, all of this accords or fits with what Romans 13, verses 1 through 5 says. Let me read part of it. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So, the government is God's servant, and it's been entrusted with limited, delegated authority to carry out God's will, to do the things that God says it's supposed to do. And one of those things, the main thing, is punishing the wrongdoer. 
up to and including capital punishment. The government does not bear the sword in vain. The principle, once this principle of capital punishment is established, the authority of the government to punish lesser crimes with lesser punishment is also established. The point of all of this is that capital punishment does not break the Sixth Commandment. Of course, these le- this leaves open the questions of, of what crimes are punishable by death and what standards of proof are required so the law is applied equally and so that innocent people are not wrongfully killed. The point is just to show these examples show that not all killing is morally wrong. These are lawful forms. Why? Because these forms of killing actually promote justice and help preserve and protect life overall. Now, that's obvious in self-defense, where, where it's necessary to take a life in order to save a life, but that same principle is true on a larger scale when it comes to a just war, where it's defensive in nature and designed to protect its country's citizens. We could say the same thing about police officers acting in the line of duty. They're there to protect the country's citizens. But it's also true of capital punishment. Executing a murderer keeps that person from committing murder again, <clears throat> and it deters other people from murdering as well. So the Sixth Commandment does not prohibit killing in self-defense or a just war or capital punishment. That leads to another question. How does this command apply in our culture? Well, the Sixth command applies to every ethical situation where uh, the taking of human life is at stake, from conception to old age and everything in between. So it would apply to the violence in our cities. I looked it up. 346 people have been murdered in Chicago so far this year. That is horrible. That should make every one of us cringe and pray for our city. Amen? It applies to mass shootings at, sadly now, schools, theaters, concerts, parades, churches, all of these situations. But I want to address just a few specific examples in a little bit more detail. First, abortion. We talk about abortion a lot here, so I'm not going to go into too great a detail here. But the Sixth Commandment forbids abortion. And we know that life begins at conception. This is true both biblically and scientifically. Check any embryology textbook. That baby in the womb from the moment of conception, it's not mom, it's not dad, it is a genetically unique human being. It is a new person made in the image of God. That means that abortion is murder. It violates the sixth commandment. The Bible teaches us that the unborn are people whose life deserves equal protection under the law. Exodus 21 verses 21 to 24. We need to continue to work to see that their lives are protected. On Tuesday this week, the Department of Justice set up a reproductive rights task force in order to challenge pro-life laws being passed in the states. So the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade and sends it to the states to make their own laws. And then the Department of Justice says, we're going to challenge those laws. We're going to come and challenge those laws. The Attorney General said the Justice Department is committed to protecting access to reproductive services. In other words, access to be able to murder babies. 
That's the same Justice Department that said it's going to investigate attacks on pro-life centers. I'm sure there's no conflict of interest there at all. Nothing to see here. See, pro-abortion activists rage on. And I'm praying that God's people would meet that with the same passion, that we'd have the same passion to defend life as they do to take life. I pray that the light of the gospel overcomes this darkness. That babies' lives are saved, that women and men find healing and forgiveness and hope through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The sixth commandment also forbids in vitro fertilization, or IVF. And understand that struggling to have children is incredibly painful, and I realize that there might be people listening who have gone through IVF. If so, please know that this is not meant to condemn you and that there's forgiveness in Christ, but the subject needs to be addressed. For those of us who believe that life begins at conception, IVF is morally unacceptable. The moral issue with IVF deals with the knowing loss of embryos. It's not immoral when you lose an embryo naturally because no act of the will caused it. But IVF involves deliberately fertilizing eggs, which some are expected and even hoped to abort because the couple doesn't want multiple births. More than that, though, a large number of fertilized eggs in the process never even survive to that point or get implanted. Dr. Shirazi uh, describes the typical process of IVF and its success rates. I want to go through this process to help you understand how this works. Step one is egg retrieval. Now, depending on the woman, it varies, but for the average woman, it's about 14 mature eggs. Step two is to fertilize those And I want to remind you that once those eggs are fertilized, that's a human being. That's a person, biblically and scientifically. Step three is embryo development. Of those fertilized eggs, 75% will make it to day three. And of that, only a third to half will make it to day five or six, that embryonic stage. But they have to get to that point in order to be able to be transferred to the womb. So in this example, 10 eggs were fertilized. That's 10 human beings. Of those, only three survived to the point of being able to transfer. Step four is implantation. In this case, one had a genetic abnormality, so it was destroyed. The two that remain have about a 50% chance of surviving and making it to birth. And even if you could only fertilize and implant one egg at a time, IVF still raises moral concerns because of low success rates. It's about 17% if you use that approach. The point is is that way too many human lives are knowingly lost to consider IVF morally acceptable. And that doesn't include the, the ethics of unused embryos. It's estimated that over a million embryos are in surplus currently in the United States. They're, they're, they're frozen embryos. In the Christian worldview, that's a million frozen people waiting for a chance to, to live. But even if you could implant every single one of them, you see by the statistics that most of them would die. 
Contraception also would fit into this category with the beginning of life. Some forms of hormonal contraceptives are also abortive because they allow fertilization, but they prevent implantation by making the lining of the uterus unfit, unhospitable. I don't have time to fully explain that in this sermon, but I'd be happy to talk with you more about that after the sermon if you're interested in having more information and you want to talk. Fourth, suicide. The Sixth Commandment prohibits suicide. It doesn't just prohibit murdering other people, but also murdering ourselves. I know this is a really painful subject for the people who have gone through this, either with a friend or a family member. And there might be some rare cases where a person has truly lost control of their faculties, but in most cases, it is right to see suicide as a sin, as tragic as it is. It's not the unforgivable sin, but still a sin. Self-murder is still murder. It's so important to make it clear that even if it feels like the only way out, God is not going to lead you to a place where breaking his law is your only option. It's important to know that even if you think that your life is pointless, to God, your life is precious. It's so valuable. He loves you. He cares about you. You are valuable to him. Suicide is never the answer to life's problems. So I want to say, if you are struggling with suicidal, suicidal thoughts, please tell someone, tell your parents, come and tell one of us as pastors so that we can help you. If your friend is struggling, you know a friend is struggling with this, do not keep this a secret. Love for them is getting them the help that they need. It's helping preserve and protect life. Last specific example, euthanasia. Sixth commandment pro prohibits euthanasia. That's killing someone for reasons that are considered merciful. It's usually the sick or the elderly who are considered incurable. God is the author of life. He alone has the right to determine when is someone's time to die. Now, this subject raises a, a host of ethical concerns that we don't have time to fully explore, but I will mention one. There has always been a distinction drawn between killing someone and allowing someone to die. Killing is actively doing something to a patient in order to hasten and cause their death. Allowing someone to pass away is passively letting someone die from other causes. There's a difference between terminating life and stopping treatment. The Bible calls us to do everything we can to save life and to help a person recover when we're able to do so. Now, there are times when there's nothing we can do, there's no reasonable hope of recovery, and the patient wishes to be allowed to die. Not killed, allowed to die. And we always have the duty to provide basic nourishment and pain management, but we do not always have a duty to provide extraordinary levels of treatment, such as a respirator, or to continue that treatment. It's okay for a person to surrender their life into God's hands and to let him take them in his time. It's not okay to hasten and cause their death. All of these examples break the sixth commandment. I want to tackle the last question, which I think is the most important. How does God aim for the heart in this command? In order to fulfill the law, our heart itself has to be sanctified. It's clear murder is condemned in Scripture, but not just the act itself, but all of the, the inner attitudes 
uh, and desires that led to it in the first place. So, for example, Cain's jealousy leading to Abel's murder, Genesis 4. David's lust leading to Uriah's murder, 2 Samuel 11. Ahab's envy leading to Naboth's murder for his vineyard, 1 Kings 21. Uh, We could talk about murderous greed, Proverbs chapter 1. Or we could talk about hatred, Leviticus 19. The point of these examples is that the sixth commandment has always included obedience from the heart. And Jesus brings this out in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus teaches that the righteousness that God requires goes much deeper than keeping the mere letter of the law. In each case, in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a moral principle involved, and when we see this, then keeping the command is far more demanding than just surface obedience. There are laws, like the law, you shall not murder, that could easily be kept in a literal sense while still leaving a lot of room for ungodliness, ungodly behavior. It's kind of like little kids who are such concrete thinkers that they sometimes literally obey their parents and yet still get away with quite a bit. So one kid complained that his mom gave him too many grapes. And so she said, well, just eat half of them. And so that's what he did. He literally ate half of every grape and left the rest. I mean, he obeyed her. Uh, This mom told her son, you know what, it's too nice outside to play games inside the house. So he took his computer outside. He's technically obeying her. Another mom told her kids, hey, don't eat all the strawberries. Technically, they obeyed. They left one. This kid was told not to wear his socks in the garden. So his dad found him wearing his socks, his dad's socks, in the garden. I mean, he obeyed, literally. The last one is, I think, hilarious. This kid on the test, the test says, draw a plant cell and label its most important parts. They drew a flower with a sad face, for those listening, and they can't see the picture. It's a sad face on the flower, and it's in a jail cell, and they labeled the bars. Kids are too cute sometimes, right? There are so many examples of this online, of kids obeying their parents absolutely, literally, and yet missing the point. In the same way, Jesus teaches that a strictly literal interpretation of the sixth commandment misses its true intention. For the Pharisees, it was enough not to kill someone. For Jesus, that was just the tip of the iceberg. That's just the outer part you see. There's still a lot more under the surface. Jesus gets to the cause of murder, to anger, and he includes that in the scope of the command. Even the angry person is going to be subject to God's judgment. The righteousness of God's kingdom goes beyond not murdering someone. So the Heidelberg Catechism says, in forbidding murder, God means to teach us that 
He abhors the root of murder, which is envy, hatred, anger, and the desire for revenge. And then he regards all these as hidden murder. So we shouldn't be surprised to read in 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 and 9. The point is God commands, he demands obedience from the heart. We may never have murdered anybody, but we can still face God's judgment if our life is characterized by anger, bitterness, resentment, hatred, insult, envy, malice. The root of murder is a corrupt heart. Now, for some people, that anger is going to manifest itself with gossip and slandering people, tearing people down behind their backs, oftentimes venting. (laughs) I'm just venting. Venting is nothing more than a thin excuse to tear somebody down in anger. For others, it manifests in bitterness, rolling over negative thoughts about a person in your mind, thinking how foolish they are, how dumb they are, thinking the worst about them, nursing angry and bitter hearts with this inner monologue that you're having of all the things that you would like to say to that person. For some, it manifests in hurtful and judgmental words, spoken in anger to the person themselves, being harsh with your spouse or with your kids. It leads to hypercriticism or conflict or stonewalling. For other people, it manifests itself as envy, envy at another person's success, whether it's success with their job or with their kids or with their marriage, whatever it is. Like anger, envy is a murderous root. James James 4.2 says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. The point is that holiness involves the heart, obedience inside and out. Now, there are times when anger is warranted. It's okay to be anger at sin and injustice. Otherwise, God would be sinning every day because he feels anger at these things every day, Psalm 7, 11. Jesus was angry with the Pharisees' hardness of heart, Mark 3, 5. Paul was angry at the idolatry of the Athenians, Acts 17, 16. The Bible says, be angry... And do not sin, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. So it's possible to be angry and not sin. There is a way to be righteous in anger. However, that's not how we're angry most of the time. There are two ways that anger goes wrong. First, when we get angry about things that we shouldn't, things that are not true wrongs, and that's most of our anger We get upset when someone bothers us, inconveniences us, or when we don't get something we want. Righteous anger is distinguished in part by the cause of our anger. That's right to be angry over sin that offends God, that hurts other people, that hurts the person who is sinning. But anger is sinful if we get angry for the wrong reasons. But even if we get angry for the right reason, it can still go wrong if we respond in the wrong way even if we're angry for the right reason. The problem isn't, in this case, that we're angry. The problem is that we're expressing it in a sinful way. An extreme example would be a a very right anger at the sin of abortion, like we talked about, 
but then expressing that by bombing an abortion clinic. Okay? Right? Anger, wrong response. But on a more practical and a much more personal level, you can be angry about the right thing and still go wrong with your anger if, you're, if it means losing your temper, gossip, complaining, holding a grudge, frustration, bitterness, getting even, stonewalling, malice, and all those things that we talked about. Even if you're angry about the right thing. So God says be slow to anger, James 1.19. Don't let anger flare up suddenly. And don't let it keep burning. Don't let it last till the next day. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, Ephesians 4.26. Be quick to forgive, quick to seek reconciliation. Because both a quick temper and a slow burn, both of those two things lead us and put us at risk of, of anger going astray, even if we're angry about the right things. God wants us to be patient and kind, tender-hearted, bearing with one another, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven us. And all of that is only possible if we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in our own flesh. So, I want to conclude. This command is one of the commands, like we said, that I think we are likely to try to check the box quickly and say that we've kept the command. And we have on the, on the surface, but not inwardly. When we realize that anger, hatred, envy, resentment, desire for revenge, bitterness, all these God regards as a violation of the sixth commandment, not to mention when we add in the fact that we are to seek our neighbor's well-being and good, we break this commandment regularly, very often. We all fall short of the righteousness that God demands in even this one command. We all deserve God's righteous judgment. We all deserve to go to hell. We all then need a Savior. As one author said, the more clearly and thoroughly we understand what God's law requires, the more clearly and thoroughly we understand the grace that God has provided for us in Jesus Christ. The depth of the law reveals the depth of our sin and the greatness of the payment that Jesus Christ made on the cross. The depth of the law reveals the extent of Christ's perfect obedience, and it helps us to understand the righteousness that we have in Christ. We can't even keep a single commandment perfectly, but Jesus kept them all, inwardly and outwardly with perfect integrity, and he did it all on our behalf. And since we're united with Christ by faith, God considers us righteous in him as if we kept the law perfectly. Christ obeyed and suffered so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Romans 8, 4. God's grace is amazing. Murderers can be forgiven. Now, Peter preached on Pentecost to the very people that murdered Jesus. And they're like, what do we do to be saved? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Paul was a murderer. He murdered Christians, yet Jesus came to him and saved him on the road to Damascus. Praise God for his salvation. The more we understand the depths of God's law, then the more grateful we will become for the grace of God in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Amen? There's hope. There's forgiveness. 
If you're prone to anger, if there's someone you resent, if there's any thought or word or deed that you have done that is murderous, repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You will be forgiven. And then, walk by the Spirit so you do not murder with your hand or your heart, but do everything you can to defend and promote life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you and praise you for what you have done for us. It's beyond what we can comprehend, and I pray that you would fill every single one of our hearts with awe who you are and what you've done on our behalf. I pray, God, that you would work in our hearts in such a way that you would help us to obey the sixth commandment from the heart. For our good, for your glory. Lord, we ask that and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.